Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transitioned their company and others who experienced disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small.big.com and sign up today. Lloyd Wolf started his consulting business in 1989. Over 30 years, he grew Wolf Consulting from a one-man show to a leading regional provider of computer support and cloud services. Lloyd talked with me about his slow and steady philosophy to growth and avoiding risks like customer concentration. But one thing was standing in his way, himself. Realizing that he had to let go of the vine for the company to grow, Lloyd eventually delegated sales and delivery roles. Lloyd shared his experience selling the company and celebrating his retirement. Finding his next passion was an important part of the story. Today, Lloyd coaches business owners how to run better businesses and live better lives as a professional EOS implementer, a system that was pivotal to his success. I think you'll enjoy the lessons and insights that Lloyd shared today. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Lloyd. It's great to be with you. How are you today? I am great. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you too. I'm appreciative that you're here because I love talking to entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs who have had a successful exit, to talk about your story. And I know it's a journey. I know it's not an overnight success. It takes a lot of hard work. And I look forward to learning more. Why don't you tell us about your background? What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, when I was growing up, it was an electrical engineer. I took electronics classes in high school. So I was going to be an electrical engineer, got accepted to University of Pittsburgh in their electrical engineering department, had one freshman year and then one semester of electrical engineering classes and decided this is not what I thought it was going to be. So changed my major over to industrial engineering on the advice of some older cousins that I consulted with their advice being, you can do a lot of things with an industrial engineering background. So I made that change and ended up graduating University of Pittsburgh with a degree in industrial engineering and started off planning to be an industrial engineer. And did that happen? It did for a few years. (laughs) So I worked in two local companies as an industrial engineer, two years with one company and two years with the other company. While I was doing your classic industrial engineering duties, I found I had a little knack and a passion for working with computers. So I ended up starting a little side business, writing custom database programs. My very first client was the brother-in-law of the marketing director of the company I was working at as an industrial engineer. I helped write a custom database program for his business. And at the time, 
I was just happy to make enough side hustle money to like buy myself the latest computer toys. So it was less about growing or building a business and more about just having some extra spending money at the time. So you were clearly an analytical guy. Being an industrial engineer means you're doing a lot of math, you're doing computations, you're maybe making either, depends on the business you were in, equipment or processes, very analytical mind, which is fantastic. So you got into kind of this computer thing. So this is in the 80s, maybe? I started the business in 1989. 89. Part-time sole proprietorship. Yes. So that's when you founded what became Wolf Consulting? Yes, exactly. Okay. 1989. Great year. And is that when you said to yourself, hey, self, I kind of like the feeling of being my own boss. I'm going to go for it. Or was it sort of the side hustle thing that you did for a while? Yeah. Well, so it was neither of those. I'm a complete accidental entrepreneur, right? I was just making a little extra money. It was kind of fun to do. I enjoyed the extra money. I enjoyed writing the programs. I enjoyed helping my clients. I was working full-time as an industrial engineer for a local pharmaceutical manufacturer that made over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, health, and beauty aids. They gave me my first big lesson in business, which was client concentration. Their biggest customer was something like 30% of their business, and they lost their biggest customer rather overnight. Their customer went bankrupt. And my employer kind of spiraled. And in the matter of a few months, I and a few hundred other employees were all out of work. So I, my hand was kind of forced. This was 1992. The economy was not doing that great. This is pre-internet. So there is no monster.com, hotjobs.com, no online boards. There was a newspaper where you would look at the help wanted ads. And the local Pittsburgh newspaper was on strike at the time. So there was just no obvious place to go look for work. So my wife and I were taking a walk one day and I said, you know, I spend this much time working on the business and I make this much money. What if I spent five times the amount of time on the business, I could make enough money that we could live off of. And she said, okay. And that was kind of the extent of the leap. That <laughs> was just, the leap. You were kind that, of forced into that was it. The but leap. Yeah. It just that, sort of happened. See, that's what some people say though, is when you have nothing to lose, it's the best time to, to start a business because you know it can only go up and you were in that situation. That's really, <laughs> that's really interesting. So you were finding problems to solve, right? As a computer programmer, how did you go about that? How did you go about building the business? I mean, it was, you know, slow and steady for the first couple of years. It was just me for the next couple of years. It was me and one and later two other other people. It was just word of mouth networking, you know, literally again, pre-internet. This is like, it was hustle. <laughs> this is ads in the yellow pages days, right? Like literally yeah. buying it. Who could buy a bigger ad in the yellow pages? Uh, <laughs> it was a lot easier back then in some ways. <laughs> it was. So just kind of slowly but surely growing kind of one client at a time. Eventually, the folks that we were writing our custom database programs for wanted to run the programs on more than one computer in their office. I mean, again, this is kind of hard to imagine, like there just being one computer in the office and it being a big deal that a company got a second computer. A computer was an expensive thing. Yeah. And, you know, you just didn't have a computer on everyone's desk back in the early 90s. So eventually the clients wanted to run our custom database programs on more than one computer in their office. And that led me into learning about computer networking 
and networking multiple computers together in the office. By the mid-90s and certainly by the late 90s, that became the focus of the business, helping businesses with their computer networks and computers in general, less about the computer programming. I, I found the programming was kind of hot and cold as a business. Like you got a project to build someone a computer program, and then once it was built, you were kind of done with them. And you had to go find the next big project to write a custom program for someone. Whereas the networking business was uh, a little more stable, a little more steady. You could have some, some revenue every month. From a client perspective, did you avoid the challenge that you brought up about having customer concentration? Did you learn from that and, and say, my strategy is going to be different? I want to target different industries. Or how did you go about avoiding that? what I call the, the Switzerland structure problem. <laughs> you know, you want to stay neutral. You don't want to be too concentrated. No, I was deathly afraid of having too many eggs in too few baskets. Ultimately, you know, 30 years later, or maybe 27 years later, after I had learned that lesson, when I ended up eventually selling Wolf Consulting, um, our top three customers were each 3% of our revenue. So I just, I did not want to have some, my limit was 5%. Yeah. My tolerance was 5% of our revenue, but I couldn't even go there. Like, yeah. so our, and that's well below, I think, an industry benchmark of 15 from a it, concentration standpoint. So you were very conservative. On I was that. very conservative. You know, perhaps to the detriment of the revenue and growth and profitability of the company, like perhaps we could have grown a bigger company or I could have done some other things if I had been a little more willing to take that risk. But I just had it seared into me as a young you saw it happen. You saw yeah, what I happened to the company. Just had it seared into me. And I, I knew of some other people who had struggles in their business when we'd look at their revenue and they'd have one client be you know, 15, 20% of your business. And when you're running a business at maybe 15 or 20% profit, you know, when your one client is equal to your total profit, that can be risky. So I just avoided it on purpose. So I know we'll, we'll talk a bit about the business more and talk about it getting acquired, but just to kind of paint a picture here, the core part of your services that you ended up scaling up, how big did it get and what was the areas of focus? Did you end up niching down to one or two core services or did you provide a more broad array of services to more of a closely held client group? Yeah. So, I mean, generally speaking, the niche that we were in was providing computer support for small and mid-sized businesses in the greater Pittsburgh area or a little broadly southwestern Pennsylvania. Our clients were typically companies that had between 10 and 100 or so computers on their network. Some of them had internal IT staff of maybe one person and we would assist them, but the majority of the clients had no internal IT and we became their outsourced IT department. Now, within that umbrella, there were some extensions, some we embraced and some we avoided. I mean, I had the opportunity over the years to get into telephone systems, and I avoided that, saying there's other people who do telephones. They've been doing telephones as long as I've been doing computer networking. Let them be great at that. I had the opportunity to become an internet service provider or a web hosting provider, and we avoided those just to stay focused on our core focus, which under the umbrella then of helping people with their computers and technologies. I mean, we did proactive support, reactive support. We did get into reselling computer hardware and software. So servers, desktops, laptops, network switches, firewalls, things like that, and software licenses. Over the years, the business 
morphed at least three, maybe four or five times. I mean, we started doing custom databases, programming, switched into networking. Networking started in the DOS operating system. If you have listeners over 50 years old, probably the only people like me that remember DOS. My dad was one of them. (laughs) There you go. Uh, It switched to Windows over the years. There were lots of Windows. I mean, there was the invention of the internet and the commercialization of it outside of military and government. So as things happened, like at first it was, do you want to add email to your business? Does your business need email? And later it became, does everyone need an email address? And later it became, we need spam filtering because I'm getting too many emails. So it, it evolved you know, over time, but generally speaking, stock to the computer support for small and mid-sized businesses, greater Pittsburgh area. I think that's a great example of staying in your swim lane. You could have added this, you could have added that, you decided to stay with your core competency. And do you think that that was a key part of your being able to scale is that focus? I, I think it was. I mean, there's lots of shiny objects that could have distracted us over the years. And I was just very mindful that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And that if I took my team and I, if we took the same time and energy that we were going to put into learning and starting and building this other part of the business, that if we just took that same time and money and effort and put it into what we really did well, I mean, we grew the business to about 100 what we called managed services clients. They were companies that we were actively engaged in every month supporting their network which is still a very small percentage of the total number of businesses in southwestern Pennsylvania that have between 10 and 100 computers. So until such time as we would have somehow amazingly saturated that market, to me, I just wanted to stay focused on what we did. And at what point did you decide to take on more people? You mentioned in the beginning that you were a solopreneur, you were bootstrapping it, you didn't have a business background, you had an engineering background. And so at what point did you realize, I can't do this myself? I really need to add people. How many hours were you working at that point? Were you at a breaking point where you just, what drew you to build that team around you? Yeah. So I I was definitely a workaholic and that was a hard habit to break. (laughs) I got better at it over, over the years, but you know, in the 1990s, definitely the workaholic. Uh, It was right around the year 2000. I'd say was uh, kind of a point where we I veered off into really focus getting let's not focus on the custom software development let's really focus on the networking and saying I can't be you know there can't just be one or two or three of us around here I can't be the person who's doing the business development doing the account management actually providing some of the technical support doing the back end office stuff you now there's just too too much to do um, so it's really around the year 2000 so about 11 years into the business, whenever I st- decided that, okay, we're going to be more than just a handful of people. And that doesn't surprise me. I talk to a lot of founders and CEOs where they get in that position where they know the customers by name, they know the solutions that are needed. Maybe they're customizing the solutions because it's opportunistic and it feels good because the revenue is coming in. But then at the same time, the owner becomes sort of the center of a hub and spoke and it becomes what we call an owner's trap where you're trapped in that middle and you're trying to make it all work. But at the same time, it could cause stagnation in the business and long-term it can actually hurt the value of the company. So it's good to talk about this. I think it's important. 
at this point, your business was about 10 plus years old. So right. you had a, you had 10 years at this point of kind of, quote unquote, doing it yourself. You had some people on your team. Did you end up adding a head of sales? Did you take yourself out of that lead sales role? Our growth really, I'll say, was slow and steady. I, you know, 20 mile march, if you're a Jim Collins uh, re- reader of Jim Collins, uh, just slow and steady adding, uh, you know, a person or two year after year. There was really never a time when I hired a large number of people. Um, whenever I, I, I retired from the business in 2019, we had 40 people. Um, so it was just, you know, kind of slow and steady adding one or two or three people, you know, one person this year, two people, three people, some years, um, just kind of slow and steady. And it really happened with all of the positions. I mean, over the course of 30 years, I really learned and performed every major function there was in the company. And to my detriment, hung on to it as long as I could. And then there, when there just became a point where it's like, I just can't do this anymore. I've got to offload some of it to someone. We'd, we'd add that role. So I saw that happen with the actual providing of the service to, to, to where I had to hire other people to actually do the computer support, not just me. Then over time, you needed someone to manage the service delivery folks. So I had to hire somebody to do that. On the sales side, had to hire somebody to help find new clients, had to hire somebody to help support or manage the accounts for the existing clients. Um, Ultimately, extracted myself out of the account management piece of it and was focused more on the business development side. And then ultimately had to bring in other people to help with the business development because I was the bottleneck. It was, you know, if I were being honest with myself, it's so clear in hindsight. Yeah. But in the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm just you know feeling like Superman. I can do this, and really objectively looking at it, I wasn't doing nearly as good of a job as could have been done. And just kind of following the model of hiring dedicated people to do dedicated tasks, so service delivery or services management, new business development, getting new clients, account management for existing clients, marketing, finance, all of those human resources. So just over the years, just finding the thing that didn't make sense for me to do any longer and tackle it one function at a time. It's incredible because your name was on the door. So your identity was so tied in with the business. You wanted to make sure it was successful. It makes sense that you were very hands-on with it. And I know you from talking off air, you know, that you're a very engaged leader and that you you don't care deeply about the success of the business. And even today, when you're not in the business anymore, I can tell you have a lot of pride about it. So I can only imagine back then that what that was like. But again, that's a common thing that I talk to a lot of people about is it's kind of a catch-22 because the more you're in the business, the more, as you were saying, the more maybe that business was being held back. Without sharing any numbers, can you give a relative sense of once you started to take that step back and you and started to really build the core capabilities of the organization, your growth, were you seeing above average of what you had been trending prior? Yeah, I think um, a turning point for the company, and we have discussed this a couple of times off airs, was in 2015, a business friend of mine introduced me to EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And I kind of used that as a benchmark for kind of a before and after point. So before 2015, if I look at the 
five or 10 years before that, we were averaging about 15% year over year growth in revenue and profitability. Um, the couple of years that I was running the business, owning it and running it after we had implemented EOS, we got to, we increased that to about 25% year over year growth. And some of the difference was implementing EOS and the tools and concepts that it helps businesses with. Um, one of the major things for me was letting go of the vine and getting out of people's ways. Like the one of the tools in EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, is the accountability chart. It's an organizational chart on steroids where you list all the functions in the company and you put the major roles and then you put someone's name in the seat. The first time we did one of those in 2015, I think my name was still in six seats. That's a lot of seats. You know, and um, <laughs> it made it clear. It was so obvious to me when you actually carve yeah. out, because when you do an org chart, you're normally just putting the people you have. Right. And maybe like your one next hire or something. But this was a case of you actually had to lay out all the functions of the business. And it really wasn't my job as the CEO to also be leading new business development and to also be doing our marketing and to also be doing our human resources and to also be uh, being the management role for all of the account managers. Uh, it just felt like that was the CEO's role because yeah. that's what I did. But if you really identify all the major functions, I was doing five or six functions. Yeah. Uh, so I aggressively began to, more aggressively began to attack that issue and bring in some other folks to off, you know, offload some of those duties from me. So that's a pretty pivotal point you said was implementing EOS. Were there any other things that helped your business change its trajectory? Any other things that influenced you? Yeah, I think there's two that I often talk about. The one we've already discussed, implementing EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system. And for me, that was a blessing that kind of found its way to me in about 2015. Um, the other blessing, which was huge, was in 2010, I met a gentleman named Arlen Sorensen. He was the founder of the HTG peer groups. It was a, a national peer group of IT service providers, other about 200 or so businesses like Wolf Consulting across the country. And Arlen invited me to join his peer group and out of the 200 or so companies that belonged, each company was assigned to a subgroup. So I was in HTG 22 uh, with a dozen or so other businesses across the country. And I found the power of just being in a room with 10 or 12 other business owners and leaders and sharing successes and failures with each other in both business and life. And I just can't, there's no way to calculate the benefit that being part of that peer advisory group was to me personally and to the business. It's huge, astronomical infinity. I mean, it was, it was, it was a huge blessing. And I'm so thankful that I met Arlen and he invited me. I encourage every business owner and leader to be part of some type of peer advisory group. There's a lot of benefit to having an outside perspective, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one coach you know, and I know you and I are both involved in, in doing executive coaching, that can be a source of, of additional ways to see things differently. So a peer group, especially an industry group like the one you were in, that's amazing that you had that opportunity. Did you get those aha moments where, oh, wow, they're doing 
X or Y, I should try that in my business also? Yeah, there were, I mean, lots of things that folks were doing. Uh, It is amazing. I suppose it's like this with other businesses, but I mean, if you happen to be riding up in an elevator with a dozen other IT service providers and you said, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Everyone would say, we provide computer support and cloud services for small and mid-sized businesses. But when you dig into it, everybody was running a different type of business. They all had their own way of doing things. Um, But there was always ways to learn from folks as far as both what they did, but even more importantly, like to share what they would share with me, what they did that was successful, but maybe I learned more lessons from what they shared with me that they did with that was not successful. And in turn, I did the same with them. I, I, I made plenty of epic mistakes in 30 years of running the business. And I had the opportunity to share those mistakes uh, with the other members of my peer group. And just because I skinned my knee on doing something stupid, uh, they saved their knees. Uh, from skinning their knees on doing the same thing. There could have been a side business. They'll need that. They'll need that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they encouraged me with things they did that they were successful at and other passions they had. One of the members of my group had a little side thing going on where he was a coach with Gallup. And he really pushed employee engagement with all the members. I had like my own little personal coach and he pushed us and begged with us and pleaded with us every quarter to measure employee engagement the same way we measured revenue and gross margin and EBITDA. And it was because of that, that we had such great culture at the, it was a huge contributing factor to having a great culture at the company. Yeah, that's really, really important. Not only are companies going to benefit by measuring and understanding in an objective way, their customer satisfaction scores, but also their employee engagement scores. I have that experience as well. And I'm familiar with the, the Gallup methodology. So that's a really interesting insight. You mentioned failures. Are you able to share one of these? I think you said epic <laughs> skin, knee skinning well, <laughs> failures. Anything you want to share? Uh, I mean, I think we talked about, you know, it was a gift that I knew how to do all the each of the major functions in the company, but it was also a curse where I was the bottleneck and it took way too long for me to learn the lesson that I can't be involved in everything in the business. Like at the time, it all felt like I had to, but objectively looking back, I didn't have to at all or not nearly as much. So I just encourage folks to, uh, you know, the phrase of letting go of the vine to just, you know, and the um, hiring for culture uh, first, it was a lesson that we learned being a technical person, myself, having a technical business, Early on, for way too long, our interviews were about technology. Like, tell me about your technical skills. Let me hit you with 20 situational questions that you're on the phone trying to give tech support to a customer. And do you know this? And later, through my peer groups, through our implementation of EOS, we learned about culture and how important it was to have people that fit the culture of the business. And they couldn't be necessarily not technical at all, but if they were moderately technical, we could teach them more of the technical stuff. But the the kind of culture stuff, the stuff you learn in kindergarten, like you just can't teach somebody if a core value is do the right thing, you just can't teach that to someone. It just has to, they have to, it has to be in their DNA and, and get it. And hiring for culture and fit first 
and the technical competency second was, I would say, one of those mistakes that I made many times over. Like you're desperate. You have to hire someone. You just need to fill a position. And I would rationalize with myself as to why this person would be different. I'm sure they'll eventually fit in. And rarely did they. Yeah. You know, the people that were the great culture fits uh, first. And even if they were not 100% on the technical skills, but were willing to learn it, these, those were the, the best folks. So that was another one of the epic mistakes that I made far too many times, hiring gotcha. just for the technical skills. <laughs> well, let's switch gears to talk about selling the company. At what point did you feel ready to get acquired and how did you go about the process? Well, I, I got introduced to the concept of thinking about exiting the business through the peer groups. Uh, Arlen Sorensen, the founder of it, uh, tells a story of how he got too many phone calls from business owners who were ready to retire, calling him up crying, saying, Arlen, I'm getting offers on my business that are just a fraction of what I thought it would be worth. What am I going to do? I can't retire. I don't want to keep working. And so he just started us thinking about the concept of what is the business worth today, objectively? What does a business need to be worth in order for you to leave it? And what's the gap between the two? So that was my first introduction. Um, so for years, it was just that, trying to just get closer to close that gap. Uh, it was about 2016 when I started to return some of the phone calls and email messages from that were showing up in my inbox and my voicemail box from people saying they were interested in acquiring my company if I was interested in selling it. So probably over the course of a little less than two years, I began to just spend some time returning those phone calls, having those conversations with people, learning and kind of educating myself a little bit about the process. Um, and alongside that, we were implementing EOS in the business and was making some changes in order to get me out of being in so many positions uh, because I'm sure the business would not nearly have been as, has been as attractive to a buyer if I had presented to them that you have to find some unicorn person to come in who can do two, three, four, five different functions in the company. So it was really like mid-2017, whenever I thought the business was really ready and in a position to possibly run without me. Did you hire some advisors to help you, accounting, law firm that were specialized in M&A transactions? You know, we talk about blessings, right? Uh, I've been so blessed and fortunate. Uh, a former neighbor of mine is a business M&A attorney and knows his craft very well. And uh, Jim was advising me uh, a little bit uh, along the way uh, whenever I would pop up. And I wanted to stay focused on running the business. I didn't want to get too distracted with the idea of selling it. Um, because I was worried something would happen if I took my eye off the ball. So I just kind of allowed myself little blocks of time to work on. This is where I'm going to allow myself to work on exiting the business. And that's when I'd reach out to Jim and we'd have some conversations. And then I'd kind of close the box up again and go back to working in the business. Did you work with a broker or a banker of any sort? I did not. I mean, in hindsight, if I knew then what I knew now, I'd probably advise someone to, to make that move. I was just pretty much going it alone, talking with the people who had reached out to me. Did you end up getting multiple offers? Um, I did. Um, I got several offers over the course of 2016 and the first half of 2017, but none of them were the offer that 
financially let me hit the number that I needed to hit um, in order to exit the business. Um, in October, or say Q3 of 2017, I was blessed to have received three offers, um, LOIs from buyers that were really able to, you know, that valued the business at the number that I needed it to be in order to think about exiting. So with with uh, maintaining confidentiality, uh, can you share if the valuation was based on a multiple of revenue or if it was based on a multiple of EBITDA? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think they all had their own formulas in there, but with some additions and subtractions, but they were all relatively based on multiple of EBITDA. Okay. Profitability. Great. Great. Okay. And was there an earnout period for you? You mentioned you stayed with the company a number of years. What was the agreement for you as the CEO and owner to stay on? Yeah. So there was no earnout. Um, that was a choice of mine. At the at the time, I was just feeling like, you know, I'm kind of a risk avoider. I suppose all entrepreneurs take some risks, but I like to take calculated risks and risks where I'm in control. And I wasn't really comfortable having, you know, some large amount of earnout money tied to performance of the business after I no longer owned it or potentially was no longer running it. I just, you know, if I wanted to keep the risk, I would have just kept owning and running the business. I wanted to take risk off the table. Um, so in that I ended up selling the business to Evergreen Services Group, an investment firm out of California that was investing in IT service providers. And just in sharing that with them, the offer that we agreed to was not based on any kind of earnout. And what I mean, was it? In, in hindsight, I should say, I'm not sure if that was a good move or a bad move, that the company continued to grow just fine we would have hit or exceeded any revenue or profitability targets that they would have set up there. Um, so I'm at peace with the decision not to have the earnout, but you know, who knows? It, you know, we probably would have hit whatever targets they had set. That's right. It's all about the risk reward. And yeah, at the time that you, that wasn't something you wanted, but yet you wanted to stay on. A lot of people feel differently. Some people feel like you feel. So it's interesting to get a perspective on that. Can you share why you agreed to stay on for, was it two years? I stayed on for really, it was 15 months. 15 months. Um, we ag agreed to stay on for at least a year. And okay. then we ended up extending it for 15 months or for, for three more months after the first year. Um, I mean, the decision to stay on was really based on a couple of factors. Um, the first one was I wanted to make sure that the buyer did what they said they were going to do. And I felt like I had some more control of that if I was still involved and engaged and running the business than if I had just completely stepped away and I was on the outside. Um, the second one was I hadn't yet figured out what I was going to do next. So it was just comfortable to continue to go to the office every day and keep doing what I was doing. What was that like when you left? Was that very emotional? Uh, ultimately, when I retired, it was rather, it was strange. I mean, it was um, mixed emotions, I'll say. I mean, I ultimately retired from the company in the spring of 2019. Um, the company was celebrating its 30th year anniversary. So there was a lot of celebration and we kind of tied my retirement alongside that 30th year celebration. So there was a lot of celebrating going on. 
Um, but I have to say it was weird literally walking out of my office and packing my SUV up with boxes of stuff that I, you know, that were my personal stuff that had lurked around my office for decades. Um, yeah, you so, launched this company in 1989 and here you are 30 years later walking out the door. I can only imagine. Yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that I missed at least a little bit. Um, but on the other hand, it's like our kids and going to school and graduating college. If the company crashed and burned without me, like I kind of did a bad job as a parent or a student you know, or, or a parent or, um, you know, the, the teacher there and the fact that it ran, that it runs, continues to run and is doing so well without me actually makes me feel good that I had to have at least done a few things right along the way that it you know, that I had the right processes and the right people and the right systems in place that it would run fine, even if I were no longer there. Proud parent is probably a good yeah, analogy. Proud parent. There uh, we go. Probably a yeah. good analogy. Talk about today. How did you ultimately decide what your next was? You know, I, I spent, I gave myself uh, the gift of a little bit of time to figure that out. I, I tried the semi-retirement thing for a little while, a few months, but found I wasn't really good at the retired part of semi-retirement <laughs> and I'm not that good at golf and I'm not that athletic. So I couldn't play that much golf. Um, so I just dedicated some time to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I know I have a passion for working with business owners and leaders and helping them with running better businesses and living better lives. I did not want, I decided I did not want to start a new business where I was going to have employees and lots of requirements for growth. And, you know, I just got off the treadmill. I didn't want to get on another treadmill. Um, so looking back, um, you know, I really love what EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system did for my business. And I saw firsthand the positive impact that the EOS concepts and tools had on me personally, on my leadership team, and on the entire company. So I decided to complete my training and became a professional EOS implementer. And now I have the opportunity to work with other business owners and leaders in a role that's kind of split between being a teacher, a facilitator, and a coach, and help them implement the EOS concepts and tools in their businesses. So I kind of get to be alongside folks who are playing the game of business, um, but I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not having to grow a business with employees and uh, all the things that go along with the, the burdens of building a larger business again. So what do you like to do for fun outside of helping companies grow? <laughs> the workaholic in me just likes to work and work with companies. Um, when it's not snowing, I think we got, we're getting, we had some more snow this week and going to get some more snow next week. Uh, when the weather's nice, I have, and I have started playing golf and I enjoy going out with some friends on the golf course. I'm not terribly good at it yet. Um, I started playing just probably two years before selling the company. It was actually part of my personal goal to have something to do, some hobby, because my, all of my hobbies were just work, work, and more work. Um, so I started playing golf just two years, I think, before I sold the business. And now it's been a few years after the sale. So I think I played about 50 or 60 rounds or so last year and hope to do the same this year. 
So the descriptor next to your name is not only entrepreneur, EOS implementer, it's now also golfer. That's right. Yeah, I try to play golf, we'll say. (laughs) Do you have a favorite saying about entrepreneurship or leadership that you can share with us? You know, there's there's two that um, come to mind. Uh, Arlen Sorensen, who found the peer groups, used to always have this phrase that said, vision without execution is hallucination. And Gino Wickman, the author of the Traction book and the founder of EOS, has a similar phrase that says, vision without traction is hallucination. Um, So it's so many companies who don't achieve their vision. It's not because they don't have a vision. It's because they're not good at the traction or the execution part, kind of the 20 mile march, just getting one step closer to the company you know you want to be running in the future every week, every month, every quarter, every year. So either of those two, vision without execution is hallucination or vision without traction is hallucination. I like that quote a lot. I found some data out there some time ago that I think it was a number of about 80% of the companies don't achieve their strategies. And it just begs the question as to why. And I think you're right. I think it has to do with fantastic execution. And so last question for you, if people want to connect with you, Lloyd, what's the best place to find you online? Sure. My current business for doing EOS implementing is Achieve Business Services. And the website is achieve-services.com. And people can also find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Lloyd, thank you so much for joining me today on Succession Stories, sharing your growth and acquisition story about Wolf Consulting and what you're doing today to help businesses grow as an EOS implementer. So thanks so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories, and if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.